Today is the last Sunday after Epiphany, uh, and so we begin Epiphany with an Epiphany, and we end Epiphany with an Epiphany, which is the story of the Transfiguration. Two times in the year, in a sense, we commemorate the Feast of the Transfiguration, not formally uh, this Sunday. In some uh, churches, like the Lutheran Church, I think this is the time when they celebrate the Transfiguration, but we do it on August the 6th. The Feast of the Transfiguration came to us by through the Eastern Orthodox, uh, and in the West it was probably uh, universally uh, observed by the 14th century, somewhere in there. It is one of my favorite feasts. It's one of my favorite Gospels. Uh, the affirmation of the possibility of transformation. I'll say this again in the sermon. The word for transfiguration in the Greek New Testament is metamorphosis. So you may understand what this might mean uh, in terms of how we can be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. So I'm going to preach on all three of the readings and see why they're in the lectionary for the last Sunday after Epiphany. Just to do a little recapitulation, we've gone through a number of themes during this period, and they're going to present themselves again in, with a slightly different cast, it, not, not cast of characters necessarily, but a cast, a tone, uh, in the season of Lent. The first, of course, is baptism, because for us on the first Sunday in Lent, uh, first Sunday, rather, uh, of Epiphany, we uh, read the story of Jesus' baptism, the inauguration of his public ministry, and by extension, a conversation about our own sense of vocation and how we understand baptism as Christian people as the template, one of the templates that we lay over our own self-understanding and that the promises made at our baptism constitute for us uh, a, a means of looking at how we're doing uh, as we live. You know, many of us were not baptized with a liturgy that had a baptismal covenant in it because the baptismal covenant is a feature of the renewal, renewed liturgies in the Western churches. And the Episcopal Church and the Canadian Church and the New Zealand Church and the Australian Church and maybe a few others have baptismal covenants in their liturgies, but uh, a number of other provinces of the Anglican Communion using the older liturgies do not. So their focus is generally on the cosmic spot remover aspect of baptism as opposed to the God's welcome into the community of faith and the invitation to go on pilgrimage and to be entitled to the strength that we receive through the sacramental life and through the receiving of God's spirit. So baptism is very important. And then we talked about the body of Christ. Paul spoke about the body of Christ. We talked about God's abundant presence and the story of the wedding, wedding uh, at Cana. And we talked about the way in which we understand um, uh, God's abundant presence to everybody in the world. And today, we talk about the transfiguration. 
The first reading is from Exodus, and it is the story of Moses coming down from the mountain. I told you one of my classmates in seminary did a paraphrase of this. We had a class that we all took, well, no, it was an elective, called Biblical Preaching. And it was taught by a former Methodist minister who was actually one of my seminary classmates. He'd come there to be Anglicanized (laughs) so he could be ordained uh, an Episcopal priest. And uh, Alan Farabee was his name. And he taught this class. And he said when he went to uh, uh, one of the big Methodist seminaries in this country, they had this contest where just out of the blue like this, if, you know, students are sitting in there, somebody would point to somebody and uh, say a theme, and they would have to come up with a biblical text to say this is what they were going to preach on. So Alan said one day one of his classmates stood up and pointed at the guy next to him and said, Constipation! (laughs) And this guy stood up and said, And my text is... And Moses took two tablets. (laughs) Some people can think on their feet like nobody's business, right? If uh, Moses comes down from the mountain and he has been transfigured, uh, what we see the Eastern Orthodox Church, I'm going to talk about this in a minute in the gospel, uh, coming out of him are the uncreated energies, the uncreated light. So he comes down and they see him and it scares the daylights out of them because he has been in God's presence carrying the tablets. He comes down with the tablets. And so because of their anxiety and their their reluctance to come near him, he puts a mask on. And he keeps this mask on with them, but whenever he goes into the tent where God's presence is supposed to be, he takes the mask off. Now, if you read a commentary about this, Reverend Childs from Yale, he would say something like, well, the origin of the mask is obscure. We don't know what the, you know, because obviously masks must have been used in some contexts in the course of uh, Near East, ancient Near Eastern worship. But Moses had one on so that people couldn't see the, his glorified face. It put people off. I sometimes think about this because uh, in a minute Paul's going to interpret this a certain way. But uh, I, the resistance or the fear on the part of people when they see that, I sometimes when I sit and meditate on this quietly, I think to myself, uh, why is it that many people often get put off uh, with other people's good fortune? When they see somebody who's really happy or for whom things are really going well for them, And that seems to kind of put them off. And Moses was probably feeling great because he'd had uh, the maximum amount of affirmation and perhaps the most internal self-confidence about what he had to do to lead the people in the wilderness 
Remember, Moses' struggle is what all leadership struggles with in every time in human history. And that is to be able to turn people's focus away from the place of remembered good times to this way where we have a new vision and a new self-understanding and some way of understanding in a deeper and fuller way God's will and purpose for us both in community terms and in personal terms. That is the greatest challenge always. You know the famous, the seven last words in the Episcopal Church, we've never done it that way before. (laughs) So the issue is for Moses, I'm feeling now affirmed by this. He's got the commandments and he's ready to go. Why is this in today's reading? It's in today's reading because we see an epiphany in the Hebrew Bible And Luke and the other synoptic gospel writers wish to always say that Jesus stands in continuity with God's revelatory purposes through the ages. And so what he will experience on the mountain is almost identical to what Moses experienced and in addition to which he will be in Moses' and Elijah's presence in the course of this story. So it's a setup for us uh, in this way. Now, Paul is struggling with something, maybe not struggling. He's, he wants to say to the, to the Corinthian congregation um, that we understand this Moses story, or he does in a, in a different way. Remember, Paul has had to engage in First and Second Corinthians in a lengthy defense of his apostleship. There are lots of people there who think he's a fraud, When he left, they came in and said, the way in which we understand Christianity is the definitive way, and what Paul told you was not true. And he also needs to defend his apostleship against those Christian leaders who believe that you have to remain a faithful Jew in order to understand the Messiahship of Jesus. You need to keep the law. So Paul has had a a struggle from both sides. And so he views the mask as uh, a device, as it says in the text, to keep the people of Israel from being less anxious. But he says, you know, every time they listen to Moses and they think about uh, their texts, they have a mask on. They can't see through this clearly enough. They are in some way obstructed. And he's speaking from a sort of uh, internal personal view that he has as a rabbi and as a devout Jew, that he has seen the uh, resistance to this. Because what he wants to say here is this. You don't need to wear a mask if you have been in God's presence. And more to the point, every single person is able to receive the transfiguring power of God. And when you do that, you receive the spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And you are able to make a difference in the world because, he says, this spirit brings to you a sense of freedom and peace. And so by virtue of that, you now have your marching orders. 
It's another thing, another text that, te- that tells you what I say all the time. All of us have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. And for most of us, that means doing the best job we can with the ordinary and commonplace activities that we engage in on a daily basis. Not engaging in some heroic activities that we believe are necessary in order to really do this. Some of you may be called to do that from time to time, and I hope you step up. But for most of us, uh, we need to do this in the ordinary and the commonplace, and that's what we're called to do. You know, the quotidian things, the day-to-day stuff, you know. Margaret Mead, the great, um, the great anthropologist, she was an Episcopalian. Her daughter, I think her name is Bateson, wrote a couple of really good books. One of them is called Composing a Life. Uh, that's a really good book. I think a lot of women, when they would re- read that, would find that a very good book. And also a book on the quotidian diaries, which means she writes about her everyday spiritual experience and understands how God comes to us in the ordinary and the commonplace. And with all his highfalutin and sometimes confusing language, Paul is really talking about that. The freedom that the Spirit of God brings to every human person. So what was the transfer, what happened at the transfiguration? Father Thomas Keating says uh, at the transfiguration, the divine source of Jesus' human personality came out through every pore. And he shone, his fate, his, he was transfigured in their presence, his clothing. You know, Cecil B. DeMille in the Ten Commandments has Moses come, Charlton Heston comes down the mountain and he's, he's there's this sort of, you know, before in DreamWorks, they have all this sort of thing, you know, surrounding you know, like this. Actually, that's, kind of what the ancient, they understood about that. He was wrapped in glory, the presence of God. So he comes down, and Jesus uh, looks like this too. And, of course, it is an affirmation for the apostles there of uh, God's illuminative powers. Eastern Orthodox Christians call this the uncreated light. It's looking at somebody and seeing that they, there's this light inside of them that, you, that does not appear to have a source. It's just there. And I used to think uh, when I first learned about this and was uh, in seminary and so on, I thought it was hooey. And I came back to California to have a, an interview with the Commission on Ministry in the Diocese of California. And I, it coincided with something at Grace Cathedral they had every year beginning in the early 70s called the Trinity Institute from Trinity Church on Wall Street. And so that year, one of the speakers was Brother Roger Schultz, who was the founder of the Taizé community. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Taizé. It's in France. And it's a Protestant, or was, a Protestant uh, religious community. So in the course of the three-day thing, uh, somebody that I knew asked me if I would like to meet him. And I said, yes, I, I would. 
So he took me, was in a, took me to meet uh, Brother Roger. And when I met him, I saw this guy and I said, he's got this thing. He had the uncreated light. And I can't tell you what I mean except that his face shone in a way that was just, uh, it was simply incredible to me. No uh, pretense about him, absolute gentleness, complete calm, uh, at home with himself. You know? I think I told you, uh, St. Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria in the fourth century, wrote a biography of one of the desert fathers, St. Anthony, who lived by himself in the desert for 25 or 30 years. Anthony went out and he lived in a cave. And he was by himself. Well, people would come to ask him stuff like, and you know, he said, if I knew what the Tao was going to do by the end of this year, do you think I'd be in this cave? But But finally, about 25 years after he did all this, somebody said, Anthony is going to come out of his cave. He's coming out. So a bunch of people thronged around the cave. Athanasius writes this sort of thing. He said, Anthony comes out. Here's a person they hadn't seen in 25 years. They heard about it. He didn't look particularly... uh, happy to see the people. He didn't look particularly upset that they were there. His body had not been badly wasted by hair-raising austerities. He was a man completely at home with himself. That's what Athanasius said. A man completely at home with himself. So I think that's what's meant when we speak about the uncreated light. The last thing I want to say about the transfiguration is a word about mountaintop experiences because this is what it is. And we have the great, you know, uh, guileless Peter who always in every, all the synoptic accounts of the transfiguration, he says, Master, it's a good thing we're here. We should build three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Moses and Elijah are there, by the way, as the affirmation that Jesus represents now, the absolute culmination of what all those people mean in the history of God's revelatory work uh, amongst the people of God. So what does Peter want to do? He wants to freeze the experience. He wants to have this continuous mountaintop experience preserved. And I think a lot of people uh, wish that to be so. Uh, People like Anthony and some of his contemporaries who wrote about the spiritual life tell you that it is absolutely unwise to seek mountaintop experiences or to seek to preserve them. You just let them come. It is a bad idea to try to run into them because you don't know what you're going to be running into. And so these mountain, if any of you have had mountaintop experiences, and I'll bet some of you may have, uh, they're there to uh, give you food for the journey. They're not there to bask in, uh, in perpetuity. So that's the, the purpose of being reminded 
Luke's gospel, like Mark's gospel, uh, has the cloud, has the voice, and the terrified apostles. So we leave today with the apostles terrified and pledging not to say anything about this. Some believe that this story, the transfiguration story, is a misplaced resurrection experience, that it was put there by the biblical writers to give confidence to people who were now going to read about Jesus going to Jerusalem and going to his arrest, trial, and death. Um, There's a solid core of historical information that would indicate that that doesn't necessarily have to be true and that it was an opportunity for those apostles to see Jesus in depth after they'd put two and two together about his ministry thus far. So what it would mean for us would be to say, to think and reflect when we have an experience that's sort of a moment of clarity. It's a way that you see your life experience uh, in very clear focus, and you see it in depth. So it could very well be a story about that kind of thing. As you continue this week, we're coming into Lent. Uh, Think about any of those mountaintop experiences you may have had. Uh, Try not to seek them out. See that they're there for the purpose of um, making yourself more available to other people, to be the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that you're called to be. Amen.